It's Thursday, August 16th, and this is The Daily Dive. A horrible situation has come to light in Pennsylvania, as a grand jury report alleges that Catholic Church officials systematically covered up the sexual abuse of more than 1,000 children by more than 300 priests in the past 70 years. John Lucy, reporter for Penn Live, joins us for more on the report, including how the diocese helped avoid scandal by using terms such as sick leave and health leave when priests were removed or relocated because of abuse allegations. Next, President Trump has revoked the security clearance of ex-CIA director John Brennan. The news comes on the heels of recent tweets from Brennan that were critical of the president for calling Omarosa Manigault Newman a dog and also calling his meeting with Vladimir Putin treasonous. Caitlin Owens, reporter for Axios, joins us for more and also the news that the administration is considering revoking clearances for other former intelligence officials. Finally, it might win the prize for the worst job in America. San Francisco has decided to form a poop patrol to keep the sidewalks clean. Between the beginning of the year and this past Monday, San Francisco residents have called the city to report feces on the street a whopping 14,597 times. Officials have decided that a poop patrol is the answer to keeping the streets clean. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Dozens of witnesses testified before the grand jury detailing acts of sexual abuse by priests and how senior church officials covered up their criminal conduct. The abuse scarred every diocese. The cover-up was sophisticated. Joining us now is John Lucy, reporter for Penn Live. So on Tuesday, we got the release of the grand jury report. It was alleging that Catholic Church officials in Pennsylvania systematically covered up the sexual abuse of more than 1,000 children by about 301 priests. What else did we find out in this grand jury report? Well, there's many shocking details of the nature of the abuse priests tying up young boys in the sanctuary, posing them in sort of religious posings, stripping them, sharing pictures of them amongst each other. So it wasn't just one rogue priest in one parish. Sometimes they were working together. And in one of the uh, dioceses, apparently they would identify the children that they were preying upon by giving them gold crosses. The shock of the details Right. Especially when you consider that we think of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s more of a simpler, more wholesome time. The the level of depravity that's contained in there, you know, in terms of the individual abuse and the type of abuse that was going on was shocking. The grand jury specifically said that, unfortunately, for a lot of these victims, there will be no justice or not able to seek any justice. And a lot of times the statute of limitations, which is a huge problem, has expired or a lot of these priests are even dead now. So there's yeah. really nobody to prosecute at that point. And, and they even mentioned in the report, we, you know, we're writing all this in the report because this is the only type of closure that a lot of people can get. And we've known that this, that this has been a problem in the Catholic Church for a long time. But specifically, this look into the Pennsylvania diocese there, I mean, it's the largest one done ever. Yeah, this was six of the eight dioceses across the state. The level, the pervasiveness of it, the raw numbers show that this is not a parish, this is not a priest, this is not a bishop, this is not even uh, one diocese. It's an institutional problem that goes across the USA and across the globe. And there are other countries that are dealing with, I know Ireland went through something similar where they were going back and hearing the victims and people coming forward. And really, you go back to that 2002 Boston Globe report, the uh, the spotlight 
movie story of when this really started surfacing because reading through the grand jury, that 2002 date was pivotal in a lot of the victims that saw that and came forward around that time. Also, some of the priests, at least, who were abusing got a little worried and some retired and some figured they'd better get out of the game because that 2002 was a shot across the bow uh, in Boston and it did echo down here and you can see it in the grand jury report. And then, of course, we're now 16 years later that the attorney general took the pains of subpoenaing all of these secret records of the diocese there that were the, held in the highest form of secrecy, like the only yeah. the archbishop had a key to look at them. Let's talk about these cover-ups, because as you said, a lot of the stuff that came from the report were in these quote-unquote secret archives. The highest levels of the church, they knew what was going on, but they would always try to avoid scandal. They didn't want to make it into a bigger thing, and they would use terms as sick leave and health leave and Mm -hmm. minimize the crimes against the kids, saying there was boundary issues or inappropriate contact, just really trying to smooth it out so that it didn't seem like something larger. Right. Even back then, even with the priest being such an authority figure back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, where the church was even more central to much more people's lives than it is today, people did break ranks. When you're abused sexually as a young kid, you change. Your your demeanor changes, and parents notice. They notice something was wrong. They notice maybe behavior that was different around the priest. So people were going and blowing the whistle on some of these priests even way back then, but they would take it to the bishop and they weren't taking it to the police. They were dealing with it through the church. And then that allowed the church the power to, through all of these euphemisms and all of these tradecraft practices of shuffling the priest along, putting him into a church treatment center for a little bit, and then moving along. They treated the pedophilia, they, they treated the child sex abuse as a sin that could be forgiven. But it's interesting, as one of the victims pointed out, that if this same priest was embezzling from the church, if they were messing with the money, the Catholic Church has a very strong record of criminal prosecution anytime you mess with the money. Messing with the kids, it's a sin. We can we can rehabilitate you. We can forgive you. We can move you along to another parish. Yeah, and, and, and allow it to continue. You see some of these cases of the individual priests, and he comes out of 30 years in Jersey, and all of a sudden he comes to Harrisburg. Abruptly, it puts in for a transfer after 30 years, and he only has a decade left of his career, but now he's going to start all over in Harry, you know. Some of them were moved around multiple times. There was one that was moved around like five times in the first nine years of being a priest. And yeah. So since the statute of limitations has expired in a lot, and some of these priests have died, the grand jury did make a few recommendations on what to do going forward. Anything that you can share about that? There is a move afoot that would change this statute of limitations and that would grandfather the victims in. Because, you know, for for a lot of these people, depending on when the abuse started, the statute of limitations could have run out on some of these cases even before they were full adults to really realize what they were subjected to. So there is some legislation that could change this. One of the biggest things is to report any abuse and the duty to report and the laws requiring any type of child abuse to be reported to law enforcement immediately. No more of this handling in-house. The report, as detailed as it is, is weighted heavily to things that happened at least a decade ago. In other words, 
There are less instances more recently, especially since the spotlight Boston Globe of more recent abuse. So maybe that's a sign that the church is dealing with this finally. I can only hope that the church takes note of this and, and makes the appropriate changes. And as you wrote in the, the end of your article, only one thing is certain about this whole thing. The Catholic Church in Pennsylvania will never be the same. And that's a good thing. John Lucy, reporter for Penn Live. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. I've decided to revoke the security clearance of John Brennan, former director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Any benefits that senior officials might glean from consultations with Mr. Brennan are now outweighed by the risks posed by his erratic conduct and behavior. Joining us now is Caitlin Owens, reporter for Axios. So we found out that President Trump has revoked the security clearance of former CIA director John Brennan. Sarah uh, Huckabee Sanders said in her briefing that it was due to erratic conduct and behavior. What else do we know about this? So during the press briefing, what Sarah Sanders said was that Trump was using his constitutional authority as president to revoke the clearance. She also said that the White House is considering revoking the clearance of some other former intelligence officials like James Comey, James Clapper, Sally Yates, Susan Rice. But then what we also know is that list of people, it's a list of Trump critics. And John Brennan was at the top of the list given the escalating Twitter comments and interviews and he's been giving, given criticizing the president. He responded to uh, President Trump calling Omarosa a dog and said that, you know, it's astounding how you fail to live up to the minimum standards of decency. Back when the president met with Putin, he also called it treasonous. But Sarah Sanders said that it really wasn't due to his continued criticism. But then she kind of went into an explanation that really seemed exactly that it was because of that criticism. I mean, I guess it just comes down to what you consider to be erratic behavior and what you think the consequences for that behavior to be. This hasn't been done before. This is pretty unprecedented to revoke the security clearance of a former intelligence official as high-ranking as Brennan. I think what we know is that this was the reason they gave, but also it's pretty, that's set against the backdrop of some intense criticism from Brennan. And we also know that the president does not like each side. These officials, when they leave their office and, and they're no longer working there, they lose their physical access to the classified material. I mean, they're not no longer going to the briefings and things like that. And most of it is really that they maintain their eligibility for the access. And a lot right. of times their successors will call them up, ask them for some advice on, on a certain issue. Maybe it's something that they worked on when they were actively getting the briefings. So that's one of the reasons why they still maintain their eligibility for access to classified material. Think of it mostly as a professional courtesy, right? Where it can be useful. It can be useful for the current administration to draw on the knowledge of these former officials can also be useful for these former officials to get new jobs. It's not like that Brennan was attending situation meetings or anything like that at this point. No, he wasn't in the room. He wasn't attending these briefings. What has been the reaction so far from uh, former intelligence and law enforcement officials? Going along the line, along the lines of this is unusual. This doesn't happen. This seems like retribution. It's also pretty petty. I also think we have to put it in a larger context, too, right? Where, first of all, Brennan was a member, obviously, of the Obama administration. He was privy to the information right in, in 2016 of Russian attempts to interfere with our elections. He had a strong stance that the Mueller investigation is real. The Russian alle- meddling allegations are real. And, you know, but the thing is, that's not any different than the current administration's intelligence officials. Part of the intelligence reaction here is just that, sure, while it's unusual for a former CIA 
executive director to criticize the president on Twitter. But also, you know, it's not like Brennan is saying anything that is factually incorrect aside from his political opinions about Trump's behavior. Right. Sarah Huckabee Sanders had said previously that when she originally said that they were looking at revoking security clearances, she said that in some cases that these people have politicized and monetized their public service and their security clearances and they're making baseless accusations, things like that. And we know the the typical route that a lot of these officials take, you know, after they leave an administration or leave their job, CNN and Fox and, and MSNBC and all these people scoop them up and use them as people who have formerly been in those positions that, you know, they have experience there. Revoking these clearances really makes it clear these people don't no longer know what they're talking about. They don't have the access that they used to. So don't listen to them. And this goes into the whole thing of just pushing back on uh, people that they don't agree with and what they're saying about the administration. I think you raise a good point. You know, a lot of this is symbolic, right? So it's a symbolic gesture on from the White House's part saying these people are not credible, as you just said. So yeah, but, I mean, I also think that that's part of the Mueller investigation. Actually, this has been reporting uh, consistently for months now that part of the White House strategy is to make this a witch hunt, to describe it as a witch hunt, to like, water down whatever the Mueller team ends up in, in saying in their final report, just in case it's damning to anyone in the administration. You know, it's also part of the president's unwillingness to accept his own intelligence, intelligence officials' conclusion that Russia did meddle in our elections because he is afraid that undermines his own political legitimacy. Going back to um, your previous question, what intelligence officials are saying, this doesn't really have much of an impact. You know, yes, it means that they can't be consulted by people who are currently in this administration. But also, I mean, Brennan can still go on TV and criticize President Trump. He can still tweet. It is it kind of symbolic. It doesn't silence them in any way, really, still. Caitlin Owens, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. I will say that there's more feces on the sidewalks than I've ever seen, you know, growing up here. That was something that did not, wasn't the norm. And that is a huge problem. And we're not just talking about from from dogs. We're talking about from humans. Joining us now is Heather Knight, columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, working out of City Hall. I mean, this really has got to be win some type of award for one of the worst jobs available. Um, San Francisco, as we know, there's a huge homeless problem. With it has come the problem of a lot of feces on the street and things like that. I know a lot of residents are really mad about it. They're going to be launching something pretty soon to help combat that. It's going to be called the Poop Patrol. What are we looking at? (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty memorable name. They're literally calling it the Poop Patrol. It's going to be a team of five people who go out in some kind of truck with a steam cleaner. And currently, public works crews respond to complaints when neighbors see it on their sidewalks outside and call. Then they'll come and clean it. But this new patrol will proactively go out looking for poop to try to clean it off the sidewalks. Looking in your article, you said that their shifts are going to begin in the afternoon after the city starts losing its sheen from overnight cleanup. So they're already doing cleanups overnight. They have crews dedicated to that. We have a really big public works department with tons of cleaners whose job is to keep our sidewalks clean, and they're out there overnight and in the alleys cleaning before you know business is open, but it doesn't take very long for the streets to start looking pretty shabby again, so these crews will go out in the afternoons. Share with us some of the numbers of how many calls the city gets in response to poop being found on the streets. <laughs> 
Yeah, we did the calculating and there were more than 14,000 calls made complaining about feces between January 1st and this past Monday. And if my math is correct, that's about 65 calls every day about this problem in San Francisco. Wow. (laughs) I I mean, that's tough. And, and, you know, San Francisco is such a tightly packed city. There's a lot of foot traffic all the time. So, yeah, I mean, I can imagine how big of a problem this is. Where did this idea come from? I know that the mayor, London Breed, was talking about it a little bit. How, How did they come to this conclusion that this is the answer to that problem? Well, they just get so many complaints. I mean, residents all over the city are frustrated with the conditions of our streets and sidewalks and call 311, which is our, you know, um, kind of customer complaint line making these complaints all the time. And I think they're just trying to come up with new solutions and creative ways to solve it. I interviewed the mayor about this, and I think it was the first time a mayor has ever used the word poop with me. But she is new in office, and I think she wants to deal with these quality of life issues pretty quickly. So residents see a difference immediately. How long has she been in office now? Just since mid-July. This is one of the first things right up on the docket because she wants a clean city. I'm sure everybody wants a clean city. You guys do also have there in San Francisco these things called uh, pit stop toilets that are around the city. There's about 22 of them around the city, and they did a lot, about a million dollars to construct some new ones there as well. These are toilets that have existed, but they were never monitored before this pit stop program started and then would be used as places to go inside and do drugs or other unsavory things. So instead, the city put monitors outside to make sure they're being used just as toilets are supposed to be used. And there's 22 around the city, and they're opening another five pretty soon. The problem is that they're only monitored till late afternoon or evening, and then sometimes they're just shut down entirely. So it's really hard if you're a homeless person in San Francisco to find anywhere to use the bathroom at night. It doesn't seem practical that it wouldn't be open at night because that's a round-the-clock business that things need to be yep. taken care of. So, But then it comes with extra costs. Like you said, security would need to be positioned there. Or these monitors would need to be positioned there, and it becomes a larger issue. Has there been any action taken to take care of this problem beyond just the poop patrol and more pit stop toilets around the city? One of my favorite nonprofits that... If listeners are wondering where they can donate to make a difference on these kinds of issues, it's called Lava May, and it was founded in San Francisco to turn old buses and trucks into mobile shower stalls and toilets, and so they drive around the city with a whole schedule. They're all over the city every day, and they allow homeless people to come inside and take showers, use the bathroom, use some nice toiletries, get themselves cleaned up because they think that that is directly related to feeling human and dignified and being able to go interview at jobs or whatever else you need to do. So they're um, really successful and they've expanded to Oakland and Los Angeles recently. I live in Los Angeles right now and we're also dealing with a homelessness problem. A lot of the conversation right now is centering around housing for the homeless and finding locations that would be able to either convert buildings or construct some new stuff for this. Is that also a conversation that's happening in San Francisco? Everybody knows that the answer to homelessness is permanent supportive housing, which is housing with case managers and social workers on site so people can get help with substance abuse problems or looking for jobs or whatever else they need help with. The problem is it's so expensive to build them, and we have so little land available in San Francisco. It actually costs pretty unbelievable, but it costs $750,000 to build one unit of affordable housing in San Francisco. So it's just a really daunting task. Well, I'm sure we'll be seeing pictures and videos of the Poop Patrol once they actually get started. (laughs) Heather Knight, columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.